the fourth of our Brahma Viharas equanimity. And I hope that I'll be speaking to it both on the cushion, how it works internally within us, and also how it relates to dealing with life out in the world, as well as the greater political situation and being involved and um, in whatever way that you, you may be involved in the world. So I'm reminded of a story about this, the 16th, 17th century Zen master, Hakuin. And he was, he, he was evidently, he was living, he was a Zen master who was living, supposedly celibate, living in a monastery, um, but near close to a village. And at some point, a young woman got pregnant in the town and then they asked her, who, and she had had this affair with this young man. He had left, but they had. So the parents had said, "Who did you? Who um, is the father of your child?" And he, she said, "It's the Zen master." And so the, all the townspeople went to the Zen master, and they said, "You're the father of this child. Um, now you're going to be responsible for the child." So when, and the Zen master, evidently, all he said was, "Is that so?" The baby was born. The family took it to the Zen master and asked him to raise it. And he just looked at the baby and said, is that so? And then years later, as the child grew up, the girl realized that she had lied. And she decided to come clean about it, told the truth. And um, they went back and apologized profoundly to Hakuin. And he simply looked at them and said, is that so? So this is, this is one of these stories that represents this quality of even-mindedness balance in the face of blame, in the face of, um, of praise, in the face of all sorts, all aspects of life. And this is what we're talking about developing here, this equanimity. Now, will it ever be as equanimous as the Zen master? I don't know. It's kind of up to you. And was there detachment with the Zen master? Was he a little bit removed? It's possible. But it's an interesting story to help us sort of see that quality come alive. So equanimity, just to remind us all that we all have it to a certain degree and that there are times in our life where we've had it more than others. And sometimes you might surprise yourself that you might be in a state of crisis, for instance, and yet your response to crisis, rather than being completely uh, worried and concerned, or is more just like, okay, I can handle this. You know, this is, this is my life, I'll deal with it. And actually, sometimes crisis brings out equanimity in us. You may have noticed that. The word equanimity... Um, the root of it is upa, I mean, well, part of the word is upa, which means over, and iksh, which the root means to look. So when you put it together, it's to look over. And when I think about that, what I think about is sort of how you can get a very broad view of something from up high. It's like looking over at things. So for instance, when I was, um, when I was younger and I was um, it was just after I'd graduated from college and I felt very, very lost and unclear what I was going to do with my life. And one of the things I used to do during this time was I would go, I was living in New York City and I would go to the top of the Empire State Building and I would stand at the top and I would look down at all the teeny tiny people and cars and it would give me this great sense of relief. 
it just like it put it into perspective. And that's in a way how I think about equanimity. It's like equanimity automatically has this view, this um, this long-seeing view, the view that actually, yes, of course, there's all these problems going on, but at the same time, there's um, people and events in life that are just this small thing way down in the distance. So it's balance, even-mindedness, non-perturbedness, if that's a word, undisturbed mind. This is what the Buddha said um, about equanimity, and he said this to his son Rahula. He said, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, this is where it gets a little graphic, but anyway, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted. Because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. So it's a little bit kind of stilted, but the way I like to think about it is is that quality, that unshakable quality that you see present in nature, and really with the, the earth itself, and I sometimes think about mountains, that you know, so much has happened to mountains or forests, and yet they remain with this tremendous um, sense of grace. And it's that quality, that unshake, unshakable quality of mind that can be with the changes in life. When I first started practicing, um, I was living in Dharamsala, India, where the Dalai Lama has his government in exile. And I I did my first meditation retreat. Initially, I was very, very skeptical, and I wasn't interested at all. And people kept saying, oh, no, this is this Dharma stuff. It's really good. And so I ended up going to these retreats and sort of sitting in the back, or lectures mostly, sitting in the back and listening and opening up large bars of chocolate really loudly and being quite rude. And... Um, at some point, I, I realized there was something good going on here, and then I decided to do a 10-day meditation retreat. And that retreat was very different than what we do here. It was much more of a study-oriented retreat. And so we would do some meditation in the morning, and we'd study all, the different, all these different Buddhist teachings. It was a wonderful introduction because it was one by one um, kind of laying out the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, so forth. And um, one day they were talking about something that's called the eight worldly winds or the eight vicissitudes of life. And this teaching, and it was done, I remember this very distinctly because it was early, early in the morning and we were all bundled up because it was freezing and it was this nun, this Western nun, who was saying that the teaching that there are always the, eight, there are always the four pairs of opposites or the eight worldly winds. Though, um, they're praise and blame and gain and loss, and fame and disrepute, and pleasure and pain. And that these are sort of the opposites that make up the world, and that we find ourselves, generally, we find ourselves always wanting the good one. We want the praise, we want the gain, we want the pleasure, and then running away madly from the loss and the disrepute and the unpleasant experience. And that our lives are like these roller coasters kind of careening back and forth between the pleasure and the pain and the gain and the loss. 
and that it's almost like like we take it really personally when our lives are filled with pain. Like it's our fault that we did this. But actually, this is the truth of life. This is the nature of life. There's always these ups and downs. And if we grab on too tightly to any of them, if we grab on to the praise too tightly, we're going to suffer. If we grab on to the blame too tightly, we're going to suffer. Any of them we suffer from. And that I heard this teaching, and I remember... I remember at the time being so moved by it because I saw that it was so much about how I had lived my life up to that point. That I was always looking to be praised and wanting, wanting the good side of, of, the, of the equation. And I just, I, and at that time, I just, I just remember I, I started crying and talking to the nun and saying, I'm, I'm really having a big problem because I'm searching madly for the good thing. I want the praise. I want the... And she said, well, there is another way. The way of equanimity. And that was the teaching to, that one could have a mind that was even in balance amidst the changing nature of life. And that to me seemed extraordinary and started me kind of going on the path. Equanimity uh, provides the capacity to see all things as equal and to see all beings as equal. And this is where it's really interesting. When you can see there's no difference between self and others, if you can see, not when maybe, but if you can see the absence of difference between self and others, that is equanimity manifesting. This, this, this non-discrimination, the equilibrium it's a very, at its, it's, it's a lovely state when we can access it. And as I said, all of us have tastes of this equanimity. In the Buddhist teachings, it comes, you see it arise when people talk about jhana practice, about absorptions of mind, where our mind gets more and more subtle until it comes to a place of deep, deep equanimity. Like it arises, it's, 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 um, along the line of doing the jhanas, or absorptions. And it also arises in the midst of the mindfulness practice. And it comes slowly, it comes in different stages, and different degrees, and different qualities. So we may have it as a very kind of, it may just sort of appear as like, oh yeah, I'm pretty peaceful. Oh, that surprised me. So it might appear on that level. But then later on in the practice, it begins to ripen and get more and more uh, defined and stronger. And it's the sense, and I was trying to talk about it this morning, but it's the sense of deep sweetness. Like there's such a quality of sweetness to equanimity because it's, it's so beyond worldly happiness. It's a different kind of happiness. It's the happiness of being like that mountain, like the earth that's not moving no matter what's put on, no matter what you know, somebody throws on the mountain, the mountain stays erect, upright. And there's even a place called high equanimity that comes in practice and that is, that's when one is living, supposedly one's mind is like an arhat, like a completely enlightened being, unmoved by anything that comes. And we can taste this in our practice. And we can cultivate it through this equanimity practice. So there's lots of um, things that masquerade as equanimity. 
And um, at this point, I, you know, the opposite, like the extreme opposite or the far enemy would be aversion or indifference. You know, I don't care or I hate it. That's hardly equanimity. But Donald, I want to I use some of Donald's work right now because he's done this wonderful job of chronicling uh, the enemies of, of equanimity. Or, um, and he sees them as versions of aversion or distancing from suffering. And I'm going to give you a list, and it's long. But mm-hmm. so this is so this is this is all the ways that we can sort of think we have equanimity, but we really don't. Here's what he he calls it: privilege, fear, escapism, denial and delusion, complacency, resignation, acquiescence to oppression, numbness, and moral insensitivity. Not to mention, well, I already did. In, in, not to mention intellectual aloofness, grasping, and cynicism. Okay, so all of these things. So when you're, the point being, when you're in a place of um, sort of, you know, I'm removed. So when he uses privilege, it's kind of a weird one to put in there. We don't t- typically think of that. But when you when you're in a place, okay, my life is so good. I'm so peaceful because I'm surrounded by all this privilege, or I'm living a life of privilege, the equanimity that comes can have this artificial quality to it because it's detached from the suffering. And remember we talked about earlier that in equanimity is compassion. Equanimity isn't, um, isn't, isn't uh, you know, kind of numbed out. Equanimity isn't um, escapist or in denial, as this, as this list goes on to say. It's much more connected feeling. So if you're thinking that equanimity is passive, it's not a passive state. It's not a, okay, well, you know, it's fine, I'm fine, it's fine, life's fine, everything's good. It's not like that. It's much more, it's much more alive and connected. So when we look at developing equanimity, we have lots of choices, actually. You know, there's so many ways that equanimity can be developed. We, it can be developed just by making an intention that I want to develop equanimity. You know, so you need to, I always think it's useful to kind of figure out what sort of temperament we have. So do you have a temperament? Some people actually tend to be very equanimous, just naturally. But then you think, then you think, about, think about the people you know who are very, very equanimous. But are these the people that also can really connect with suffering? You know, so if you, some people might be so sort of equanimous that they're not so compassionate. And then there are people that I know, for instance, who are really, really compassionate but have no equanimity. And you just kind of sort of see, where are you on that scale? And you can look and say, oh, well, actually, I'm a kind of equanimous person, but I really could stand to be a little bit more compassionate. And so you develop more of the compassion, or vice versa. So they really balance each other out. And I think it's, um, it's just interesting to sort of see where you, where you stand. So we can make a commitment. If you're, if you're a person that feels like your life is drama and up and down, and okay, I really want to be more equanimous in my life, um, we can remind ourselves of it constantly, turning our mind. What do you want? Do you want to be, you know, Stephen Levine used to say this thing, would you rather be right or would you rather be free? 
You know, when you're in a place of suffering, would you rather be suffering? Would you rather be equanimous? You can really ask yourself these questions. Equanimity comes also when we remember change, when we remember that life is these, the, four, the eight worldly winds going from one end, one end to the other. You know, we're, we're in praise right now. Everybody loves us. They're praising us. But tomorrow they might blame us. Okay, if you can remember that, there's this sense of relaxing, ah, and that can often bring about some equanimity just in one's daily life. And then through this practice of learning to let go, of learning that where it hurts when we hold on, you know, life can just be much more we can, we can learn to sort of embody these qualities. This is from Basho, who is a Zen, another Zen teacher who embodies these qualities. This is a little haiku from him about equanimity. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. That's it. <laughs> That's it. He just gets it. You know, can we just get it? Can we learn to let go? Okay, it's this, all right, maybe it's this. Where is my heart? Where is my heart? And it's this, can I be with things just as they are? May I accept things just as they are? Fleas, lice, and horses pissing. I had an experience where I really, really kind of got hammered into me what equanimity was about when I was living in a Buddhist monastery. I've talked about... um, I talked last night about there being lots of bugs that I had a hard time with. And um, there, there were just the wildlife. I was in the forest in Burma about an hour north of Rangoon. And I was astonished by the, the different... There were snakes, big snakes. I mean, we're talking snakes. We're not talking little snakes. We're talking big snakes. Scorpions, big scorpions, centipedes, poisonous um, bugs and I mean there was just this huge range of wildlife and it was so it was it was really my practice that year a lot had to do with bugs and animals and um, one of the um, the thing that actually bothered me the most at one point was the mosquitoes so just ordinary mosquitoes and I remember there was a period of time in my practice when I was living in this little this little cement hut and. I spent a great deal of my time trying to get rid of mosquitoes. So I would devise these traps. I was supposed to be meditating, of course, right? But I was, instead I was sitting there devising traps. And I came up with some really good ones. Like I had this bucket. I got this bucket of really kind of grimy lake water. And I put it in the center of the room and waited for the mosquitoes to fly in because they were attracted to it. And then I'd wake up in the morning and I'd put another bucket over it and rush it out the door. And I would have captured many mosquitoes. Of course, you couldn't kill. You weren't allowed to kill, right? Um, and then I had the, the hut I was living in had holes in the walls because that was considered for ventilation. So I would put magazines up and cover all the holes and then I would have protected myself to keep the mosquitoes out. But then um, I would be boiling hot because it, it was about 100 degrees or more. So that didn't work. And then I came up with this great one, which was uh, the, if I, at night, if I turn out, in, out the light in my room, turn the light on outside... And then I would stand by the window and I'd open the window really wide and the mosquitoes would come flying and I'd say, come and get me. And they'd come after me. Of course, they were going to the light. But anyway, they would come after me. I'd jump out of the way and they'd all fly out the window. And that one worked for a while. And then I was very proud of myself. And as you can tell, of course, I wasn't meditating much. But anyway, at a certain point, um, 
it occurred to me that I can design traps and I can put up, you know, holes, cover the holes and I can, I can do all sorts of things, but there's always going to be another mosquito. And it was like, I got it in that moment. I went, all right, this enough, Diana, this, you got to stop. You, what about create, instead of devising traps, what about learning to have a mind that can be with the mosquitoes or the mosquitoes of life? And then I started using a mantra, which was, there's always another mosquito. Every time I would get a little anxious or wound up. So that's just, it's just, it, it was um, kind of a silly story, but a story of, of learning to develop that quality amidst the difficulties in life. And can we, can we have that quality? It's through the wisdom of seeing the lack of wisdom sometimes that equanimity comes. You know, we realize we've been doing something in a dumb way. And then we go, okay, I'm going to change. Equanimity develops through the Vipassana practice also. The more we can sit with things and just being present with things as they are, the more this ability to be equanimous develops. And it's really not... um, there's not a lot you, I think I said this earlier, there's not a lot you can do to force it. You just have to keep letting go and letting go and letting go. And the more you let go, the more equanimity kind of comes into its place. So just this practice of being with things as they are. And then, of course, the practice that we're doing. The practice that I've been talking about, about um, that we've been doing today of except you know using phrases doing anything which cultivates the open spacious practice that allows us to really see things coming and going the phrases working with things that are difficult that you don't have equanimity with and learning to in your mind become more equanimous and then using that on the spot in life when you're in the middle of a difficult situation that you just know you can't accept just stopping taking a breath <sighs> May I accept things as they are? Just turning the mind, inclining it in that direction. So years ago, um, I heard this story um, that was told by um, about Ajahn, Ajahn Cha, who's the Thai forest master, most of you know. And the story was that was that uh, a monk of his was practicing. He was very, very attached to meditation practice. He really loved it tremendously. And he was trying to practice in the monastery, but he couldn't because it was kind of noisy and people were talking to him and they were asking him for favors and he just wasn't happy. So he asked Ajahn Chah, would it be okay if I go practice in a cave? And um, Ajahn Chah finally, mm, okay, you're allowed to go practice in the cave. So he found this cave in this isolated place, and he went off during the, the like, sort of holiday season, Christmas time, and he went to this perfect cave that he knew was going to have the perfect conditions to meditate. And he started meditating, and the next thing he knew, there was all this sound of, um, of uh, Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, because the Thai people nearby were playing this. So the music was going on, and he's trying to meditate, and he's getting really frustrated, and all day, 24 hours a day, they're playing Frosty the Snowman, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And at a certain point, he started to get sick. And he started to get more and more sick, and finally he was so sick he could barely move, and he, find- he had to leave the cave or get some help, and he ended up in the hospital. And 
he went. He was in the hospital, and Ajahn Chah, his teacher, went to see him. And he came in, and Ajahn Chah looked at him and said, "You know, how's it going?" And he said, "He said I'm having a horrible time. I was I was listening to you know the music was disrupting me. I couldn't practice. I got sicker and sicker. And then he just said, things shouldn't be this way." And Ajahn Chah looked at him and said, "If they shouldn't be this way, they wouldn't be this way." So I heard, this te- I heard this teaching and I thought, okay, this is a really great teaching. It's a teaching about equanimity. Because you really, if you think about it and you think about things in your life, they should, you know, that feeling, that sense of it's not fair, it shouldn't be this way. Well, equanimity is, that fe- is the thing that says, well, it is this way. And that's a good thing because we want to be developing it. And yet, how do you think about equanimity and things being as they should in light of the vast injustices on this planet? You know, well, these people are suffering under war or poverty or violence, but um, if things shouldn't be this way, they wouldn't be this way. So I remember when I heard this teaching, I had this immediate response of getting angry. Like, that's not fair. I don't like that. It's not fair. And, um, And I... It really led me to do a lot of reflection and thinking about what is the role of equanimity in light of the suffering of the world and in light of our desire to act and make change in the world. Because if things shouldn't be this way, they wouldn't be this way, then why do anything? Why not sit at home? You know, well, it's just, it's their karma, right? Probably not the healthiest response, but it's important to pay attention here. So... What I discovered and what I've really come to believe over time is that it's only through equanimity that we can really hold the suffering of the world and act with wisdom. So that's the paradox, of course. You know, equanimity seems like it's about everything's okay, but actually it can, it, it's the, uh, not the catalyst, but it's the, it's, it, it can be like the deepest motivation behind what we do or the deepest guide of wisdom to acting with wisdom. So how do we hold um, the suffering that we know is going on in the world? Or maybe the suffering that's going on in our lives, in our relationships, whatever it is, without burnout, without fear, without despair, without numbness. So the first aspect, I think, is by... With the gift of equanimity, we can allow the suffering in to touch us. And this is so important because so much of the time when we meet suffering, we have a response of either fear, denial, pushing it away, or being overwhelmed by it. But equanimity is exactly the quality of mind that allows us to meet it with connection and not fear and not pushing away. So it invites us to open to suffering and creates, and and as we practice opening to suffering with this equanimity, it creates a resiliency of our heart, an ability to be more open in the face of suffering. That it's actually, it's it's um, it's really the saving grace in the midst of suffering. Thich Nhat Hanh has this poem. Flare bombs boom on the dark sky. A child claps his hand and laughs. I hear the sound of guns. 
and the laughter dies, but the witness remains. Can we meet the suffering that we see on this planet with this quality of equanimity? Can we say, yeah, this is how it is, and it, maybe it shouldn't be this way, but my heart is willing to open to this. And then when it's appropriate, with wisdom, we know when and how to act. So it's like when our minds are clouded with anger and outrage or burnout or numbness or despair, or any of this, we don't see very clearly. Equanimity brings wisdom. Equanimity has this quality of bringing wisdom to what it sees because the mind is so clear and open and balanced. And then we know when it's appropriate to act or not act. We also can know when is it appropriate for us to pull back. Because sometimes jumping into suffering or spending hours you know, re, you know, uh, watching the news or reading the newspaper is not helpful to us. You know, lots of, I, there's been times in my life where I said, okay, I'm going on a media fast. I'm not going to do this now because it's just too disturbing. I can't tell you how many of my friends recently have said to me, I've given up Amy Goodman <laughs> because she's, you know, she's intense. It's like it can be overwhelming. But it's not permanent giving her up because it's, you know, she's incredibly you know, brilliant and has so much to say, but it's like, it's like you learning with your own equanimity to modulate what is appropriate. Really, I mean, in a sense, it's just common sense. But it's, it's, it's opening to the suffering with reminders. Like one of the reminders that I find so helpful that kind of sends me into the notion of, um, of equanimity is the notion of the long-term, uh, of, of, of geological time. You know, that what's going on, we're suffering. Like someone said to me once, he was, she was, I don't know if anybody has read the book Bury the Chains by Adam Hochschild about slavery and the origins of the abolition movement. And someone was having dinner with this man who wrote this book and, he, and she was complaining about this war and that war and, oh, this is horrible. And he just, he just kind of picked up his, his fork and he said, you know, in um, 200 years ago, two-thirds of the world was in slavery. And then he went back and he started eating. And it's like giving the historical perspective helps the equanimity grow inside oneself. Um, Joanna Macy said this somewhere. Joanna, who is this wonderful, as most of you know, activist and teacher and Buddhist philosopher, eco-philosopher, she says, if we are not separate from the living world, then we should act our age. We are four and a half billion years old in terms of the origins of life and 15 billion years old in terms of the Big Bang. Every atom and every molecule and every cell of our body goes back that 15 billion years. The life that is now beating in our hearts and breathing our lungs now didn't begin with our conception. Rather, life flows through us. For me, this is a wonderful doorway into equanimity. There was a, does everyone know The Onion? Do you know The Onion? The uh, parody newspaper? I saw um, that one of the headlines said, um, and this gave me a lot of hope, it said, um, Bush vows to end dependency on oil by 2,456. <laughs> 
and I thought, oh, he really is taking the long-term view. That's, that's equanimity, geological view, time. It's also equanimity brings this wisdom, the wisdom that things are as that things are as they are, that we can remind ourselves of this in the face of the suffering that we feel, that we see, that we witness on the planet. I I talked about Eddie Hillisum last night, and someone in an interview today reminded me some interesting things about her, which was that when she first um, when the, the the occupation of the Nazis started, she was a very kind of superficial young woman. She wasn't very spiritual. She wasn't very connected. And um, it was through the tragedy that she went through that her spiritual, her equanimity and her joy of life grew and grew. And the Brahma Viharas, if you want to call it that, of course she didn't, but, but they actually developed in the face of this tremendous adversity. And... Um, so much so that she said later on in her life, hang on. And later on in her life, she di- she wasn't she only she died at twenty nine. But one of the things she said in her book was, <clears throat> people sometimes say you must try to make the best of things. I find this such a feeble thing to say. Everywhere things are both very good and very bad at the same time. The two are in balance everywhere and always. I never have the feeling that I've got to make the best of things. Everything is fine, just as it is. Every situation, however miserable, is complete in itself and contains the good as well as the bad. Like a deep, deep equanimity in the midst of the suffering situation. And, and the fact that it, it, I find it so interesting that she cultivated it. It wasn't like she started that way. She didn't start out as Mother Teresa. You know, she was just an average young woman. She developed it because she saw that the only way to survive those circumstances was with this expansion of her heart. When she left the concentration camp, um, she was leaving on the transport, and she threw a postcard out, and it was found by farmers. And the postcard said, We have left the camp singing. Yeah. Really intense. So we can learn to face the suffering in the world with this equanimity. But then we also need to act. You know, we, we don't just say, okay, everything is, everything is fine just as it is what's on TV. We say everything is fine just as it is and or may accept things just as they are and this needs a little work, this needs a little work, here's where I can make a difference. Suzuki Roshi said, things are perfect as they are and they could use a little improvement. So acting, um, what does acting from equanimity look like? I think for one, it doesn't look like burnout or overwork or um, lack of care or it, it doesn't look like any of those, any of the um, things we fear and that we often experience. Acting from equanimity has, again, this resilient quality of the heart, this ability to bounce back. It's rooted in wisdom and clear seeing. It's infused with the other three Brahma Viharas, the compassion, 
the sympathetic joy and the metta, it sees clearly the other situation with balance, and it sees oneself with equanimity, which is really interesting. Like, think about it if all activists who are doing work in the world saw, had equanimity, like, you know, saw themselves clearly and could act from equanimity. It's quite an interesting... It, it, it's, it's not acting from fear, not acting from anger, not acting from outrage. It sees the long-term picture. So what would activism that was grounded in geological time look like? That's a great question, right? So some ideas, you know, Gary Snyder, for instance, used to talk about um, making a 4,000-year commitment to land, right? 4,000 years, that's a good, you know, then, then as for people who are um, doing in-service service jobs or, or do volunteer work or activism, there's this sense of like, okay, we've got to solve everything tomorrow and, uh, you know, I have to change the world immediately, but what if we had the 4,000-year vision? Or Dr. Arya Ratni of Sri Lanka, who who um, decided that we should have they should have a 500-year peace plan, because it took 500 years of colonialism and, and globalization to create them and war and um, you know and national inter you know national violence within uh, the Buddhists versus the Hindus and so forth. It took 500 years to make the mess they were in. So now, how about another 500 years to clean it up? It's a thought. Joanna says this. She says, We can also feel the presence of the future and past generations encircling us, cultivating a sense of our collegiality with them, seeing them as companions on this awesome journey. I would call this an ordinary person's version of equanimity. I'm just part of the story. This helps us as activists to give up trying to do it all in our lifetimes or to succeed as the most effective social change agent the world has ever seen, the peerless defender of the rainforest or the conqueror of the evil empire. Rather, there's a web of life that's much bigger than us. We're part of the story. It's still passionate when one has equanimity, so it's not Again, not any of those, those, those enemies. It's not disconnected. It's not fearful. It's not cynical. It's not, you know, I can go back through that whole list that Donald wrote. Um, so there's still, there's passion, but there's wisdom. And I think that's really such a key to this equanimity. I've seen, I've seen a change in myself over the years with the way that I do my own work in the world. Like there used to be much more of the sense of I was really way more attached. I had a lot more, oh, just a lot more, um, what's the word, you know, investment in my success. And now there's more of a sense like, oh, success, failure, well. I mean, I would rather succeed than fail, but... It's, you know, as the Bhagavad Gita talks about not being attached to the fruits of one's actions. Not easy, but a wonderful, wonderful guideline. So equanimity is just 
this treat, you know, equanimity, when we t- stumble upon it accidentally, when we open to it, when we cultivate it, when we work really hard and equanimity arises and it comes into being and we see it and we see it flower and we see it grow. I mean, what a gift. And this great gift of this happiness that's not dependent on conditions. That's the happiness of a mind that is free. Really, equanimity is a mind that's free. You know, not bound by conditions, able to be present no matter what it is. And that's how we can be in the world. We can be free in that way. So I'll just end with a Wendell Berry poem, which many of you may know is called The Peace of Wild Things. I think it really, really gets to the heart of equanimity. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's life may be. I go and lie down where the woodrake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and I am free. So let's sit for a few minutes. Beings are the owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depends on their karma and not on my wishes for them. May we all experience deep, deep equanimity. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 15, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.